At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm John Fortin. Welcome to The Exchange. Here is what's ahead. Tech stocks are treading water after a big run. NASDAQ's flat, S&P tech sector flat, WCLD up 1%. The Dow, the only major average that hasn't dipped into negative territory at some point in today's session. NVIDIA's market cap briefly touched $2 trillion this morning. So is the AI momentum finally starting to slow? Our trader says not just yet. The names she's buying now and the one to avoid. A different story for Live Nation, however. Shares higher following yesterday's strong earnings. We're going to talk to the CEO about the company's expansion plans this year. Plus, tomorrow marks the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 500 new sanctions issued this morning. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in Ukraine to show solidarity as well as pressure Republicans to pass the latest aid package. All this as Russian troops move further west. We're going to talk to a panel of experts about what's next. But we begin with today's market action. Dominic Chu has the numbers. Dom. All right. So, John, as you point out, we've seen either side of the unchanged line so far. But generally speaking, we're in the green, modestly so, but enough to not bury the lead here. We did hit record intraday highs for the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the S&P 500 at one point today. But we're off the session highs. To give you an idea of what we are right now, the Dow Industrial is at 39,162, up one quarter of one percent, 90 points to the upside. Not much, but it's still something positive. The S&P 500 approaching the 5,100 mark, 5,095 the last trade. They're up eight points, but two-tenths of one percent. At the highs of the session, we were up 24 handles, points there, and maybe just down about six points at the low. So, again, we've seen either side of it, but tilting a little bit more towards the middle of this range. Still, though, good enough for a record high for the S&P 500 at one point today. The Nasdaq Composite, the laggard, and who can blame it? It's been a big week so far for the Nasdaq Composite, 16,044, just about flat on the session so far today. Let's take you through the week that was because it was a banner one for many parts of the market. So far this week, though, every single sector in the S&P 500 is up. But the laggards, we don't often talk about those in a bull run like this. The laggards have been the energy sector, the real estate sector, and the utility sector. You can see up there about one-third of 1% gains for those. Again, still gains, just not as good as elsewhere in the market. So keep an eye on those underperforming sectors this week, as opposed to the outperformers. No surprise, technology leads the way, given what we've seen so far in technology shares overall. But the consumer staples trade, one to keep a close eye on, some deep value buying or short covering there happening in consumer staples with the interest rate picture overall. And by the way, we got to end on this, John. You mentioned that near $2 trillion market cap that we're at in NVIDIA topping that $2 trillion mark at one point. It's just about 800 bucks a share, up another near 2%. At this point, NVIDIA, John, the
the stock of the day, the stock of the week, the stock of the season, maybe even the stock of the year at this point. I'll send things back over to you. And it's only February. Can't forget about Walmart. Walmart had a big week, too, with those consumer staples. But, yeah, Dom, I mean, even, even the Nasdaq's got to stop for a drink of water every now and every then. Every now and then. Dom, thanks. Optimism about Fed rate cuts lit a fire under stocks back in November. And while they're still posting gains, the market's tightening expectations have taken quite the turn since then. Our Steve Leisman joins me now with that story. Hey, Steve. Hey, John. Yeah, before that, some quick headlines from New York Fed President John Williams. He says hiking rates is not his base case, but he warns he would rethink the, uh, uh, that idea if the outlook changes materially. He says it's appropriate to cut rates, quote, likely later this year. And the view of the economy or his view of the economy didn't change after the January data. It says the economy is moving in the right direction. Those comments apropos of what we're saying today, we marked a milestone in the outlook here or yesterday when futures markets fully priced out all the exuberance for Fed easing that launched the rally late last year, and yet stocks have held on to those gains and even added to them. The exuberance took hold in late November when Fed Governor Waller acknowledged that if inflation fell, well, the Fed would have to cut rates. That was followed in mid-December when Fed Chair Powell acknowledged that the Fed had discussed rate cuts at the December meeting, helped further by December inflation data. Markets took off and priced in 7 cuts this year. That's the bottom of the chart, that low funds rate. But futures markets started taking back that easing amid strong payroll numbers, higher inflation data, and then, of course, that barrage of Fed speak that warned against bets on early cuts. At first, the stock market rallied along with the easing. It sold off when it looked like the Fed would do less. But stocks, you can see, they're right in the middle of the chart. They started to go their separate ways around the middle of January, embracing better economic growth and, most importantly, better earnings. For now, it seems, stocks can trade higher on earnings and on better economic growth and a forecast of future but fewer cuts. The question is if the market and the economy, John, are going to hold up while the Fed gets comfortable enough to cut. That is a big question, Steve, and stay with us as we explore it with our next guest who says that no matter what the Fed does with rates, strong earnings, excitement over AI, they're going to keep the rally going, but with a small catch. He also says 2024 is going to be the show-me-the-money year as the AI hype for many companies will prove overblown and only the true winners will continue higher. Joining me now is Michael Landsberg, CIO at Landsberg Bennett Private Wealth Management. Well, Michael, good to see you. Happy Friday. NVIDIA certainly showed us the money this week. And to me, it seemed like a pivotal moment because it came the day after Palo Alto Networks, is another high-flying name, disappointed on the guide. So what's the importance of that 24-hour period to the overall market, not just these two stocks, between Palo Alto and NVIDIA? John, I think a lot of people were kind of holding their breath related to NVIDIA. And obviously, it's the bellwether in this space. They've kind of redefined what generative AI is. And I think people were really looking at that ecosystem that NVIDIA provides. If they disappointed, a lot of other things were going to sell off and, and the bubble, so to speak, would have popped. So They came out and actually blew away earnings again. And uh, a, a lot of that now rally has increased. And, and maybe the cybersecurity story uh, still a good one, maybe it's not as good as the AI story, but we've seen AI uh, cybersecurity rally uh, again as well. So I think NVIDIA obviously drove it, and I think we're seeing some other opportunities now in the tech space to follow along because earnings have been so strong in tech. But what does this say for the overall market narrative? Because for so much of the last, you know, seven weeks, you know, 2024 in this market, we've been hearing about, oh, we need more breadth. We can't just rely on these big tech stocks. It's got to be about more than, you know, the magnificent Seven. And now we're back to talking about NVIDIA again. Is that healthy for the overall market? 
It, it, it isn't. I mean, yesterday's return, I think four, four stocks for 46% of the returns yesterday. So it does need to broaden out. What's been exciting to see is the S&P, you know, 90% of the stocks have reported this quarter. Uh, you know, earnings growth is up 6% year, year over year. Last year, we didn't have a lot of that growth. You know, Nasdaq's up 32% year over year earnings growth. So we're starting to see a broadening out. We're getting some momentum in some other stocks. Uh, the Russell 2000 is not dead anymore starting to show some signs of life. That's a positive sign. So I'm hoping it broadens out because obviously, you know, NVIDIA has done a lot of the heavy lifting as, as those other Mag 5, if you will, have as well. Oh, poor Tesla. Steve Leisman, um, is this the ideal scenario or close to it for the Fed? Because, you know, get the sense they don't like to be the story. And, and right now, the, the, the market seems to be moving just fine. At the same time, the Fed's not having to threaten to hike rates, even as some of this overall economic data comes in hotter than many expected. Yeah, John, I think you put it in a good way. I think the Fed is happy to be on the sidelines and let stocks really respond to what's going on in the economy, what's going on with earnings. That's a place I think the Fed prefers to be, but it shouldn't be lulled into a complacency here. What it does is going to matter. Um, I think what Michael is talking about, and indeed you too, John, are talking about, may be something that is interestingly divorced from the economic cycle. This AI thing, I think, has a life of its own that if you were in a recession, I think the AI thing would go on. More and more I think about it, I think this AI thing is linked to uh, secular, secular labor shortage uh, problems as well as problems in supply chains. All of this should enhance productivity. That's going to be a big challenge for the Federal Reserve if there's a step change in productivity. But I think the Fed is going to have to act here. And I think when Michael talks about the broadening of the rally, I think it's going to be more linked to that. I think the danger here is that there's this erosion underneath from companies that have to refinance, from the CRE problem, from consumers having high interest rates. That's going to be a problem. And the Fed is going to have to respond, I think, because, in fact, rates are restrictive and they're going to get more restrictive as inflation falls on a real basis. Okay. Well, we promised the people, Michael, some opportunities beyond the MAG-7. So let's give it to them. You like Dexcom, Zoetis, uh, MSCI, Arista Networks. None of those is huge. So why do you like them? Well, Dexcom is an interesting story. Dexcom, I think, has sold off in the last year or so. It's, it's up about 5% over the year, down year to date. Uh, they're in the glucose monitoring business. I think everybody has seen the rallies in the GLP stocks uh, with Ozempic, Manjaro, and they think diabetes is going to go away. Um, Dexcom is going to grow 20% a year uh, really a diabetes one type scenario, great management, double digit growth, and the stock hasn't moved. And for us, I, I think it sold off because of the irrational fears that GLP was going to solve everything. Uh, Zoetis is a name we like. Obviously, animals, big deal. Uh, we saw that during COVID. You know, uh, vet visits were down in the last couple of years. They're starting to rally up. And they've been double digit growth as well during that period of time. We think it continues to get stronger as pets become more and more important. And generationally, they're more and more important for younger people. MSCI is kind of the boring, you know, old Morgan Stanley Capital International uh, research data team. They provide all the indices, you know, huge margins in that business, not a lot of competition. Again, the stock hasn't moved <clears throat> that much. Um, first three stocks haven't moved that much. The last one it has is Arista Networks. To me, they've got the best CEO in tech that no one's ever heard of. Uh, she's a phenomenal CEO. Um, they're in the switching business, which makes, you know, AI and some of these uh, data center hyperscalers work faster. Um, she has killed it in terms of a stock that has moved higher and higher. Um, 
but it's an $80 billion market cap stock. So to me, it's got a lot of opportunity. Its biggest customers are, are, are the metas of the world, Microsoft's, and those are good places to be. So it's a way to kind of backdoor play AI, but it's not up 200, 300, or 400% like some of the other more peer plays like NVIDIA or Supermicro. Yeah, well, we know Jayshree for sure. Um, we, we like to talk to her. She is doing quite well over there at Arisco. And I, and I don't know how my cat Opal can get any more important, but I, I get your point. Michael Landsberg, Steve Leisman, thank you. Uh, sticking now with tech and maybe with animals and turning to the IPO market, the homepage of the internet now gearing up to go public. Social media platform Reddit filing its perspective yes, prospectus yesterday and uh, revealing its perspective on a surprising major stakeholder you might have seen in the headlines recently. Our dear Drabosa has that story for today's Tech Check. D? Yeah, I think that's fine. None other than the it guy of tech right now, Sam Altman. The ties to Reddit, they go back more than a decade and they were pretty surprising. I mean, he has more than 9% of voting power. He has invested at least $60 million starting back in 2024, and he was even CEO for just eight days. But these ties run deep, and it got us thinking, you know, what else has Sam Altman invested in? And it turns out that his empire is quite large and quite sprawling. Investments, some of the darlings of private tech, they include Stripe, Instacart, Humane of that Humane AI pin, uh, Cruise and Asana. But in total, 125 companies that he has invested in since 2010. So his empire is wide. Also, his investment vehicles. This is a web here. There's Hydrazine Capital, which an investment fund which he started with his brothers. There's also Apollo Projects, Altman Capital. And let's not forget that OpenAI's venture capital fund is still in his name. That was supposed to only be temporary, but it is still in his name so far, which raises a lot of corporate governance questions, but so do a lot of his investments in AI, which is probably why he had to step off the Reddit board back in 2021. Um, and it's interesting too, in light of some other recent news that Reddit is gonna be licensing its content to an open AI competitor, and that would be Google's Gemini. So sprawling wide web here, and it all seems to lead back to Sam Altman. A lot of the stories we're doing these days. Yeah, uh, to close the loop there on the animals on Reddit, I was thinking about the Shiba Inu, uh, because you know we know the memes are big over there. But when it comes to a Reddit IPO, the environment has shifted dramatically over the past year since we first started talking about this. Meta is up. Snap, you know, one of the main social media competitors, is down. Are the prospects for a public Reddit the same that they were a year ago? You could argue even longer, right? It's been waiting in the wings for so long. This is a company that's nearly 20 years old. Um, it's hard out there for social media companies. If you're not meta, you mentioned Snap, but also flew sort of under the radar today. But Nextdoor, right? They had a leadership change just this morning. Sarah Fryer is out. The founder is going back in. And this is a company that, remember, IPO'd through a SPAC back in 2021 for more than $4 billion. It's now worth less than a billion dollars. So it's really tough. We'll have to see how Reddit does. It was last valued at $10 billion back in 2021. We know that a lot has changed between now and then. And the last thing I would add, John, is it's still unprofitable, right? So we'll have to see. It'll be a test for the IPO market to see how investors respond to an unprofitable company. Oh, uh, well, something tells me better than they did a year and a half ago when uh, all of a sudden, you know, people thought that profits were it, but not so much. Deirdre Bosa, thank you. Coming up, Live Nation shares nearing a 52-week high as the company posted record highs in attendance, ticket sales, and sponsorships. 
Up next, we're going to speak exclusively with the CEO about the quarter and the year ahead. Plus, this weekend marks two years since the start of the Ukraine war. We're going to take a deep dive into the geopolitical landscape, including today's sanctions and the state of defense spending. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Live Nation, a pretty hot ticket after posting record revenue in 2023, thanks to a surge in concert sales in the fourth quarter. But will live music continue to be a draw this year with consumers under pressure from higher costs? Well, CNBC's Julia Borston joins now with an exclusive interview with Live Nation CEO Michael Rapino. Julia? John, thanks so much. Michael, thank you so much for joining me here today at your Live Nation yes. headquarters on the heels of a much better than expected top line beat, over a billion dollars higher revenue than analysts expected. Coming off such a big year, you had a strong year the year before. Um, was last year peak concerts? Are you going to be able to keep up this momentum? Right, that's the question coming out of COVID. But we, we think we're on a on a, a new decade-long run of this kind of breakout of concerts on a global basis. We're seeing the global demand that we never saw before. Um, from every, uh, every 18 and 16-year-old in the world that has a, a TikTok wants to see Drake and, uh, and Taylor Swift. So we, we think we're at the start of a new revolution and, uh, and a global surge on live music. Wow, global surge. Now, your revenue did beat expectations by far, but your operating losses at the concert division were larger than expected. Operating income missed expectations. What was behind that? Yeah, I mean, listen, we stepped back out of the quarter and you stepped in the year. We had an incredible year. I mean, this is these are the days you dream of, right? You're up 30% revenue, AOI, your free cash flow. And you, you know, think about our business. Take 2019 and take the two years of COVID out of there. We've doubled our AOI since then uh, in three years, basically. So our business uh, in, in 23 was on fire, but we're also making sure we invest for the future. We're really, really doubling down on our venue strategy, which is in our concerts division. So we're absolutely making sure we deliver, but also investing in what we think is a bright future for venues. And so you did say that this year there's going to be more of a focus on amphitheaters and arenas, fewer big stadium shows, you know, which are, of course, the biggest. What does that mean in terms of your top line and your bottom line? You know, obviously these are smaller venues, but how does that play out? Well, again, we're proud about, as we said yesterday, we think we're going to deliver double-digit AOI growth. Um, Calling that this early in the year is rare for us, but we wanted to make sure we we stood strong um, given where we're coming off this base. So we think in 23, we still got, in 24, we've got 10, 12 stadium tours out there right now. 
more to add. Um, but yes, definitely more arena tours, Usher, Justin Timberlake, Olivia. Um, and more money for us happens when shows end up in our amphitheaters, our festivals, where we have a higher AOI because of all the ancillary revenue. And AOI is adjusted operating income, just to translate that for our viewers. Right. So um, just to put this all in context, though, you've seen strong spending. You've seen, um, obviously, concert ticket sales. You're even saying that they're up uh, by a meaningful percentage just in the first six weeks of the year. But are you at all concerned that consumer spending is going to tap out at some point? Um, at one point, are you going to see consumers facing economic pressure from other things or even just the impact from inflation that we've had in this past year or so start to impact how much people are willing to spend? Right. That's the question. We, we, we have seen nothing yet. I, I was in Columbus, Ohio, two nights ago for a Drake show. Um, he's doing a college tour. It is sold out. We did two nights in Columbus, middle of America. Uh, all the merchandise was selling out. Everyone was having a great time at the bar. So we have seen no pullback. And again, we always remind people the concert is still a very affordable experience compared to going on a travel trip um, or Disneyland or other expensive kind of propositions. It's still an incredible escape. Most tickets are still under $100, so very affordable. And the one indicator we still see that kind of shows the demand is secondary is still double What's, what primary pricing is. So the demand is still strong as ever. We still think it's the best place that a, that a consumer can go for that value. So the other question here is the Department of Justice. Now, I understand that you can't comment on the DOJ antitrust probe, but if the DOJ does take action against Live Nation or Ticketmaster, how could that impact your business? And ultimately, how big of a potential risk is that for investors? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we don't have a lot of comment because we're, they're really running the show. We're cooperating fully. We're, 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 uh, we're hopefully deep into it. And whatever they come up with in the end, behavioral changes, whatever they think that, uh, that we have to look at, and we, we don't think it's a big risk in the long run to our business. This is a very healthy company in many pieces. And just a final question on your capital investments. Um, you've been talking a little bit about that on, on the earnings call, but when you talk about investing in the infrastructure and investing in these um, different venues, what is that going to do for your business over the long term? How could that change either the, the margins or even sort of the consumer experience? Yeah, our business is ultimately the more vertical we are on a global basis, um, the better for our margin. So. Uh, we, we kind of like Netflix. You, you want to make sure you're in all the shows, whether they're in your venues or not. But the ones that you own, you're going to have a, a longer lifestyle uh, a margin. So we think there's a huge international opportunity, not a lot of great arenas. Um, so we think over the next 10 years, you're going to see us really excel our international venue business. That'll absolutely help our margin and drive our AOI to new, new heights. Well, certainly a lot for us to watch uh, as you head into another year of a lot of big concerts. Malika Rapino, CEO of Live Nation, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you, always. John, back over to you. All right, and thank you, Julia, as well. On deck, NVIDIA's recent rally pushing it past Amazon to become the third most valuable company in the S&P. We're going to trade the chip maker and some other AI names ahead in three buys and a bail. We'll be right back. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at T-Mobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Bertha Coombs with your CNBC News update. Russian authorities have given opposition leader Alexei Navalny's mother a three-hour ultimatum over his burial. That's according to a spokeswoman for the late Alexei Navalny. The opposition leader's mother was told unless she agrees to a secret burial in the short time frame, her son would be buried in, a, in the penal colony where he had been serving a 30-plus year sentence. Argentinian President Javier Mille will welcome Secretary of State Antony Blinken today, making him the most senior U.S. official to visit the country in a show of support since Mille was sworn in in December. Mille has taken a pro-U.S. stance and pledged to stabilize the country's fragile economy. And the International Olympic Committee dismissed the Russian Olympic Committee's appeal against its suspension imposed in October. The sports arbitration court found that the suspension did not breach any legal boundaries. The suspension does not affect Russian athletes who will compete in the Paris Olympics as neutral athletes. This is becoming a thing for the Russian athletes. Back over to you. It is indeed. Bertha Coombs, thank you. And coming up, new trade restrictions placed on nearly 100 entities ahead of the two-year anniversary of Russia's war with Ukraine. The Biden administration saying today's sanctions are just the start of the U.S. response to dissident Alexei Navalny's death in Russian custody. The other steps that could be coming from the U.S. and its allies next. Welcome back to The Exchange. This weekend marks two years since the start of the Ukraine war. Here are some stats to put things in perspective. 18% of Ukrainian territory remains under Russian control today as a result of the ongoing war and the recent death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The Biden administration is imposing more than 500 new sanctions against Russia. At the same time, $61 billion in American aid to Ukraine is stalled in Congress. Joining us now to cover those angles are Hagar Chamali, former spokesperson for the Treasury and the U.S. mission in to the U.N. And Ted Dada is uh, Moody's head of financial crime compliance for Europe, Africa and the Americas. And Roman Scheiser is T.D. Cowan's defense analyst. Eamon Javers also joins me here on set. Welcome, everybody. Hagar, it feels like things over the past while have been playing into Russian hands in the sense that uh, it's been able to continue selling energy. Putin has been killing off dissidents of all kinds. Um, how is this affecting the geopolitical uh, position from here? Well, you're, you have it put right here, but let's look at it from two angles. On one hand, when you see Russia crack down this way, you've had, like you said, a number of, you have Alexei Navalny's killing. You have also, by the way, the arrest of the L.A. resident, the U.S. Russian resident who was in Russia, who was arrested for giving a donation to a Ukrainian charity. You have the fact that there was a Russian defector who was killed mysteriously in Spain. All of these things point to a crackdown that's meant to instill fear in the Russian citizens, but also is reflective of Russia, of Putin's security on how he feels on his grip on power. At the same time, you have what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, which is a little bit worrisome, because Putin is watching the fact that you have this Ukraine aid bill stuck in the House because Speaker Johnson won't bring it to, the, to a vote on the House floor, even though a majority of Democrats and nearly half of Republicans support it. But when he's seeing that, he feels empowered. And we already saw the effects of that play out when Ukraine, Ukraine withdrew from the city of Avdivka last week. 
Russia took control over that, and that portends some concerns for how strong Ukraine is on the ground. You know, Hagar, we saw the administration saying a couple of things simultaneously today, and we saw the president out today talking about this. Uh, one of the things they're saying is that these sanctions are working. They're very effective. They're actually lowering Russia's resources and, and, and increasing resistance of Putin's ability to fight a war. Uh, but we're also seeing them say, you know, we're still going to do more. Um, you know, we, this is not the end of what we can do. And you wonder where the outer limit is for all this, because it se doesn't seem to really stop Putin's ability to wage war in Ukraine, as you, as you just laid out. Uh, what about the ideas of going after Russian sovereign funds that are frozen outside of Russia now, confiscating those, giving those to the Ukrainians? That's something that the U.S. has been reluctant to do. And then what about Vladimir Putin's personal assets? We seem to be reluctant to go there for national sovereignty reasons. When is the time when the United States will say, you know what, we have to do this? All right, so let's go backwards from your questions. The first about Vladimir Putin. Putin himself was sanctioned by the United States individually on February 25th, 2022, the day after Russia invaded Ukraine. So any assets he has within U.S. jurisdiction would already be frozen. And U.S. persons, that means businesses and individuals, are prohibited from doing business with him. And then that unleashes market forces around the world. So, so banks around the world, businesses around the world that are on the side of Ukraine and the West in general are not going to want to do business with him for that, for that reason. So you have that part. But the part that you're talking about, that th the 300 million in, in reserves at the Federal Reserve that are frozen, the Russia's reserves, this is a controversial move that the U.S. is currently debating and Congress is currently debating. They're debating whether to seize those assets and give them to Ukraine for rebuilding efforts and repatriation. And it's controversial. It's unprecedented. And it's controversial because it's never d been done before, but also because it could risk countries' faith in buying U the U.S. dollar and putting them in reserves at the Federal Reserve Bank. And the, that's a big source of strength for our currency. And if that strengthens our currency, that in turn strengthens our sanctions as well. So it's a very controversial move. I'm not exactly sure where they'll go with that, I, I, but it is very controversial. And I expect that decision making to go on for a while. And I'll make one final point on the strength of sanctions, which is that sanctions are meant to work over a long period of time. And every time you sanction a target, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. They always find a loophole or another way to evade sanctions. And Russia did that here. And that's what that's the importance of today's package is that they've sanctioned these enablers in countries like China and the UAE that have helped Russia receive technology and other goods to support their war machine in Ukraine, to to refurbish equipment and tanks and things of that kind. And so at the beginning, this was really working last year because of U.S. and Western sanctions. Russia had lost 9,000 pieces of equipment, but they did a workaround. They started receiving ammunition and weapons from North Korea and Iran. And so this is meant to get at that as well. All right. Hagar, thank you. Hagar Chamali. Let's turn now to the latest round of sanctions announced by the Biden administration today. Uh, Morgan Brennan spoke with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo earlier about their effectiveness. Just today, we announced we're putting another 94 companies on the entity list because we have found that they are still selling, you know, spare parts and technology to uh, Russia so Putin can conduct this unjust criminal war. So uh, is it working? I think I'd say yes. You know, we have hundreds of companies that we at the Commerce Department have put on the list. We've blocked them from selling technology and semiconductors and spare parts to the Russian military. Uh, but it's it's the, this war must end. He must end this war. And until he does, we are going to wake up again tomorrow and ask ourselves, what more can we do? 
You can catch the full interview today at 4 p.m. Eastern time on my favorite show, Overtime. Uh, Ted Data from Moody's is back with us. Ted, I'm not convinced. I mean, Putin just gave a car to North Korea's Kim Jong-un, and, and something tells me that it's because he's happy with the way things are going in that relationship. He seems to be working around sanctions pretty effectively, no? Yeah, I mean, the sanctions evasion challenge is the one that we're all facing right now. So the designations that your former guest mentioned there, they highlight the fact that, yeah, 500 names added to the list. The EU did 200 this week. The names being added, though, are from increasingly not just the Russian population. So 26 entities in 11 countries outside of Russia. Um, the, the designation talks about sanctions, evasions and circumvention. Anyone facilitating, orchestrating, engaging with support. Six of those Chinese firms listed. One particular designation is worth reading into. This is because they were shipping microelectronics from China to an already sanctioned Russian entity. So this is the evasion uh, situation that we're in. The, the, the new ask on the banks and corporates who are the ones at the front lines keeping the gates is to not just think about breaching. And, and if you're screening against names and lists, you've got to be thinking about, are you inadvertently facilitating an evasion network? And that means looking deeper into things like ownership structures, into things like shell companies. That's been a big red flag that FinCEN called out fairly early on. We've built some proprietary insights to help people dig deeper into shell companies because of the risks of dealing with front companies that potentially are linked to sanctioned entities. So yeah, there's a big new dynamic, which is evasion uh, and how you can yeah, how you can protect against that risk, how you can do due diligence against evasion risks. Ted, it's Eamon Javers here. I did a story just this week about Apple's new Vision Pro product, which is not available for sale outside the United States. But we discovered it is available for sale at Apple resellers uh, in Moscow right now. And that's despite the fact that Apple said it was pulling its sales out of Russia to protest the Ukraine invasion. So these supply chains have a way of uh, reinvigorating themselves, even if the company doesn't want them to. I'm wondering if, what your take is on how effective these sanctions are and, you know, how symbolic they are. One of the people that was sanctioned today by the U.S. government was the warden of the jail where Alexei Navalny was killed. I can't imagine that sanctions from the United States are gonna affect the life of a warden of a jail in the Arctic Circle in any way, really, and practically. How much of this is symbolic and how much of this is actually effective? Yeah, it's your first question. I think the, the multi-tier supply chain and distribution challenge is, is a really real one. It's very difficult to get deep dive information in real time into the kind of multi-tier distribution and endpoint. And that is something that everyone is looking for help with and continuing to, to, to push forward. That is a real challenge. Um, and we've seen the distribution, the, the designations today, reflecting those distribution networks that the authorities in the US and the EU are trying to, to crack down on the so-called circumvention hubs. So it's countries nearby or routes nearby, which are uh, potentially transiting goods. So, yeah, that's a very real challenge. It's it's very difficult, and you have to apply pressure at the bottom as well as at the top. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, as part of a sanctions regime, there will always be high-profile designations uh, and names that need to be on the list, but I'm seeing increasingly more applicable and more relevant names of, of those types of companies and networks that really need to be, um, yeah, need, the net needs to be tightened. So that is, that is good in that direction that we're seeing those names being listed. Finally, Ted, what's left in the bag after this round of sanctions? What more could be done? 
Yeah, you know, I think there's there's more names. Um, what the, the U.S. is also doing with its secondary sanctions regime is putting pressure on institutions to to look more deeply into their current processes. Um, the designations this week, the executive orders, they talked about having uh, a new round of, of, of controls on those banks, and so not just the, the banks that directly breach sanctions, but any secondary sanction, any company that wants to deal with the U.S. financial markets, thinking about their risk assessments, getting deeper into understanding the end of the trade finance flow. But again, it's very tricky to know who the counterparty is, who the good is, who the product is. So asking all banks and corporates to rethink their risk assessments, put more controls in areas like cyber as well, understanding the IP address, the endpoint, the geolocation. That's an area we've seen OFAC coming down on quite harshly and in the last couple of years in their, in their enforcement. So cracking down on those IP address, the whole digital footprint of your customer and third-party population, you've really got to think about that in real time. Yeah. Uh, I'd see out the new area and a new frontier for sanctions evasion risk. Hard to do, though. Ted Data, Moody's Analytics Head of Financial Crime Compliance, Europe, Africa, and Americas. Thank you. And finally, the $61 billion aid package for Ukraine currently stalled in Congress. Let's turn now to T.D. Cowan, defense analyst Roman Schweitzer. Roman, normally, I mean, it always sounds crass to talk about uh, these kinds of deadly conflict in financial terms, but wars that seem endless tend to be good for the defense industry, no? Yeah, unfortunately, that's the uh, the sad reality, uh, and uh, that's been the case for both uh, U.S. and European companies uh, as demand for uh, munitions and uh, missiles and, and vehicles have been really off the charts. Uh, not not just for Ukraine, though, also for uh, related to Asia and the Middle East. So uh, you know, the brewing global conflicts have have really uh, increased uh, surge in demand, and that's been a challenge, quite frankly, for the U.S. industrial base to meet. Roman, I wonder what the implication is for the U.S. industrial base of the war in Ukraine. Fascinating article in The New York Times this week detailing how the Ukraine war is giving, you know, war fighting lessons in the current era to the U.S. military. And in fact, the U.S. military has canceled now two drone programs that were probably pretty expensive because those drones would not survive in the Ukraine theater as it is now. That so much of this sort of ad hoc inventiveness that's going on in the battlefield now shows that you can do things at lower costs that are more effective with drones and other devices uh, than we've been doing with our enormously expensive, you know, American defense contractors. I wonder if there's a threat in a way to American defense contractors contractors from some of the innovation that we've seen going on on the Ukrainian side on the battlefield and some of the lessons learned about distributed warfare as opposed to consolidated warfare uh, on the battlefield. Sure. No, I, I'd say that's uh, absolutely right, Eamon. I think there's threat and, and both opportunity uh, for sort of a, a revolution in, across all sort of domains of warfare. I think we're seeing that. But, you know, clearly Ukraine is being fought almost with 20th century tactics and 21st century technology. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, uh, a lot of this has come down to, uh, you know, sort of trench lines uh, and 155 millimeter ammunition enabled by Starlink communications and uh, first person drones, uh, armed first person drones. So it is it is really a blend. And I don't think there's a, there's really a going back. But the one thing I would caution <clears throat> is that there's being a, there are a lot of lessons to be learned, and a lot of them are going to be wrong, and they're not going to apply to the next fight. And I think what DoD uh, and militaries around the world are trying to say that look, this is sort of unique to the European theater, uh, and may not apply to a Indo-Pacific scenario regarding China and Taiwan or perhaps uh, even what you see in the Red Sea, uh, you know, with the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, so, you know, there are some, this is based on a sort of unique set of circumstance. 
Clearly, there are macro lessons, mm -hmm. um, but you know there are other things that people may, at the end of the day, take away the wrong lessons. Roman, call out some uh, public companies for us that have skin in this game. Uh, Boeing, we've been talking a lot about it from a, a passenger plane perspective, but it also has some uh, military contract issues that have been challenging for them on, on this uh, on this cutting edge technology front. And then there's AeroVironment, names like that in the drone space that have some growth potential, but I don't know if they're growing at expectation. What can you tell investors about how they're faring? Yeah, so the one thing the one thing I think that's been unique over the group broadly over the last two years uh, is you've seen an immense uh, backlog, certainly uh, spending and, and refill related to Ukraine. Uh, U.S. foreign military sales are at a record pace. Uh, so it, it is really, uh, again, a rising tide, as you as you mentioned, unfortunately, right, this is a circumstance that benefits the industry. But almost every company within the sector has a unique contract or supply chain issue that has uh, maybe hit profitability or performance on some of their bigger programs. So I really think uh, investors right now are being uh, super selective uh, and discreet uh, and, and perhaps, you know, maybe not some of the traditional defense heavy names like a Lockheed or Northrop or LHX. And they're looking at some of the more blended names like, a, um, you know, companies that have broader portfolios like a Boeing or General Dynamics or Textron. Uh, and then, of course, you have some of the unique uh, government services companies. Um, like Booz and Palantir and others that, that play in the government services market and perhaps are providing AI solutions. So really across the industry, I think people are sort of being more discreet and uh, as they look at uh, individual uh, issues. All right. Thank you, Roman Schweizer, and thanks for riding shotgun with me. Yeah, thanks, John. Pun intended. Uh, yeah, Eamon Jabbers. Right. Coming up with the NASDAQ, the outperformer yet again today, we'll have the three AI names to buy now. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Let's get a check on Rivian under serious pressure down nearly 9% today as the Bears feast following Wednesday's disappointing results. UBS issuing a rare double downgrade to sell, cutting its price target from to eight bucks from 24. Ouch. UBS reassessing its demand view, saying Rivian's current profitability strategy is now, quote, quite onerous. JP Morgan also downgrading shares to underweight, saying the disappointing guidance essentially means no growth this year for the EV maker. And coming up, AI stocks fueling the current rally, but our trader is souring on this one name despite a near 25% run over the past six months. We're going to reveal it next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Artificial intelligence has dominated the recent news cycle as investors are looking for ways to get involved. My next guest has three buys, one bail. Joining me now is Gina Sanchez. She is the chief market strategist at Lido Advisors and a CNBC contributor. First up, NVIDIA. The company surpassed $2 trillion in market cap earlier today, sitting right about at that level now. Shares climbing 10% this week on the back of blowout earnings Wednesday. But Gina, you say there's still room to run. Why? So this is the stock that reignited the rally, uh, and a lot of people think, well, it's gone so far. How could it possibly go? You know, keep going? But if you look at its forward earnings right now, given the intensely strong demand that they have seen and believe that they are going to be able to um, benefit from over the next 12 to 24 months, it's actually looking pretty cheap uh, compared to its competitors. Uh, you know, it's trading in, in the neighborhood of uh, 30, 31 times forward earnings. That's actually a steal 
for what it is offering, you know, even compared to another name we really like, which is AMD, gave weaker guidance. They're trading more like 50 times forward earnings. Um, so, you know, this this semiconductor microchip play is super important to the uh, artificial intelligence machine learning um, efforts because computational speed capacity is very important. And the smaller these chips get and the faster they get, the, the more computers will be able to learn. All right, let's move to a name that leads with software. Also in the MAG7, Alphabet shares up nearly 60% over the past year. Google launching Gemini Business and Enterprise this week in a move to raise AI revenues. But it had to pause its AI image yesterday after some issues with, let's call them historical inaccuracies. So, Gina, can Alphabet's Google catch up in the AI race? Is it too early even to call it behind? No, I think it's actually they're they're still they're still a strong competitor. And if you look at the base of data that they're sitting on relative to other competitors, um, they will be able to learn more and faster. Look at what Google has done for maps, what Google has done just for the ability. I mean, as far as natural language processing experts, this is an organization that has it at the core of their business. Um, so I do think that they will recover from this quite well. And the fact that they are responsible enough to retrain their algorithm says something about that, you know, the company and its commitment to what it's trying to do. But we're actually not focused on its AI play. We're actually focused on the transmission play. You know, when you look at artificial intelligence, it's not just about being able to compute faster, but being able to reach vast sums of information that are elsewhere. So you have to transmit it. And most people think names like Verizon and AT&T. But in fact, Google, along with other cloud providers, but particularly Google, is making big inroads into the 5G play. And that is also going to be a part of the Google story. Okay, the last buy is not in the MAG7. IBM, one of the first large companies to develop AI with its Watson and Deep Blue developments, but that didn't hit at the time. Gina, you say to stick with IBM here despite it not participating in the recent AI rally? Well, IBM is uh, a really traditional company that's known more for its consulting, which is considered a, a low margin business. But if you look at its DNA, Watson uh, was created at IBM, Deep Blue was created at IBM, and they have made a pivot as a company to move into this cloud um, this cloud offering. Uh, and that service is going to push revenues. And if you look at the entry point of IBM relative to the rest of the cloud plays, at 18 times, it is really attractive. Okay. Well, finally, that brings us to our bail. Apparently, in February, it's too cold for a lemonade stand. That was our mystery chart, boasting AI underwriting in the insurance onboarding process, but the company's seen some challenges on its path of profitability. Gina, why are you bailing on Lemonade? So it's a couple of reasons. One, you just mentioned their path to profitability puts them at profitable sometime in mid-2026, which is a lot of time to have to continue to take on debt and to sort of manage its pricing in what could be a potentially turbulent environment that we're heading into. We have so many tail risks um, that are out there that unprofitable com companies just simply don't have a lot to go, and they have an intense short interest against them. 30% of their free float is right now in short interest, and that's a challenge. Uh, it is, even though insurance has been doing well. Gina Sanchez, um, thank you. And that's going to do it for The Exchange. But I will see you on the other side of this quick break for Power Lunch. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.